If, if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 1 through verse 17. Colossians 3, from verse 1 through to verse 17. Paul writes this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. There's lots that we could look at in this passage, but the verse I'd like us to focus on this morning is verse 15, where Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. In this verse, Paul speaks about the fact that peace is something that we have as Christians, but also something that we need to work for. It's something that we have within us, but something that we need to work out with others. Peace is God's gracious gift to us, but it also needs to be our desire. And this morning then we'll look at uh, those two aspects of peace, the peace that we have and the peace that we are to give. Firstly, let's have a look at the peace that we have. When we become Christians, one of the things that we receive is peace. But the New Testament refers to peace in two distinct ways. Firstly, the New Testament speaks about a relational peace. 
One of the miracles that took place in South Africa in 1994 was the establishment of the South African National Defence Force. It was a miracle that took quite a bit of getting used to because you may remember how former members of the Defence Force and members of Umkontwe Wesizwe suddenly became members of the same body, the South African National Defence Force. Two groups that had formerly been enemies now were reconciled and united. I'm not sure if there was some government legislation that covered this. I'm fairly sure that there must have been. But there came a certain day where all members of Umkontwe Wesizwe were no longer considered enemies, but were considered friends. There was peace between the two groups. Paul writes earlier on in the book of Colossians, and he says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies. But something changed. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. It's amazing when you think about it, isn't it? When did Christ die for us and forgive us and reconcile us to himself? Was it when we started to become interested in spiritual things? When we started going to church? When we began to read our Bibles and praying? No, it was while we were God's enemies that Christ died for us. And when we become Christians, we move legally from being God's enemies to being his friends, his beloved sons and daughters. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace then is a legal standing before God. The moment we accept Jesus, we move from being his enemies to being his friends. And that monumental change has happened to millions of people all over the world, many of whom are sat here this morning. Can I ask you, has it happened to you? And if not, what's preventing you from coming to God this morning? We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, this peace that we have doesn't just include a relational element. It involves an emotional element. Peace is something that we experience as believers. I'm not completely sure whether the idea of emotion uh, is what I should be saying. I'm not sure if the term emotion or feeling really applies to God's peace because, of course, God's peace is something that lies even deeper than our emotions, doesn't it? It lies underneath our ordinary emotions. In John chapter 14, shortly before his death and resurrection and ascension, the Lord Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So Jesus speaks here about two kinds of peace. There's the world's peace and then there is his peace. Most of us understand the world's peace. 
perhaps after the service now you'll go home and you'll enjoy a, a lovely meal and uh, after the meal maybe you go outside and sit under a tree with a book and a cup of coffee and you will experience a measure of peace. But that's not the peace that Jesus is speaking about. God's peace is a spiritual peace that outward circumstances and situations can never truly take from us. It's a lasting peace that doesn't depend on everything going well. It's a peace amidst difficulties, not without them. It's a mysterious peace. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul speaks about the peace of God which transcends all understanding. And it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Does God's peace mean the absence of trouble? No, of course not. A little later on in that same conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says that if we're in the world we will have trouble, and everybody is in the world, and everybody has trouble, but some people are also in Christ in the world, and Jesus says, in me you will have peace. I heard about a local art society that held a painting competition, and the theme for the competition was peace. On the day of the exhibition, they invited a few art critics to come and judge the works. And as the judging panel walked around the hall, they saw painting after painting of beautiful green meadows and of still waters, uh, calm rivers, beautiful sunrises, beautiful sunsets. And eventually, the group came to the last painting in the hall. And at first glance, this painting seemed to have nothing whatsoever to do with peace. There was a huge waterfall cascading down a precipice and the viewers could almost feel the cold penetrating spray. There were stormy grey clouds above the waterfall that threatened at any moment to explode with lightning. But then as the spectators looked more closely at the waterfall, they spotted that the artist had painted a small branch. It had been caught in the rocks at the bottom of the waterfall. And there a little bird had built a nest and was content to sit on her eggs in her nest. And the judging panel agreed that this was true peace, confidence and trust in the face of turmoil. Peace is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of God in trouble. So that is the peace that we have as Christians. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ relationally and peace within our hearts that transcends understanding and that guards our hearts and our minds. But let's move on secondly and look at the peace that we give. Paul says in the second part of Colossians 3 and verse 15, since members of one body, you were called to peace. In other words, peace isn't something that we simply enjoy for ourselves. It's something that we offer to others. Peace isn't only our comfort, but also our calling. And in a couple of ways. Firstly, as believers, we need to proclaim 
peace. We proclaim peace. World War II officially ended in 1945. Victory in Europe took place in May 1945 and later victory over Japan in August 1945. However, Lieutenant Hiru Onada of the Japanese Army fought the Second World War until 3 p.m. on the 10th of March 1974, uh, despite the continued lack of opposition in the later years. He kept on fighting for 29 years. He used to come out of the jungle on his remote island in the Philippines and fire off the odd bullet on behalf of the emperor. In 1945, come-home letters were dropped from the air over his island, but he ignored them. He thought it was just an American trick to make him surrender. After he was found in 1974, it took, him, it took them six months to finally convince him that the war was over. It's an amusing story, but at the same time, it's quite tragic. And a similar tragedy is taking place in our world this morning that we live in a world that is literally at war. People are at war with others, at war among nations, at war with their families, at war with their neighbors, at war with themselves. But all of those are simply symptoms of a much greater war, that people are at war with God. And this morning there are men and women and young people and boys and girls who have yet to hear the message that we can have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. If we've been reconciled to God, if we have peace with God, then it's vital that we tell other people about our experience, that we urge others to be reconciled to God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians and he says, God has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You and I have a wonderful, although tragic, opportunity in this week with all that is going on to tell people that we are at war with God and that we can be reconciled to him. We're to proclaim peace. Secondly, we need to pursue peace. And on a couple of fronts, we need to pursue peace with outsiders, with those who are yet to be Christians, with everyone around us. Paul says in Romans 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Living in South Africa can be quite overwhelming. Our problems seem so huge. What can I do about crime and corruption and the slipping morality in our society. Well, I can't change South Africa, but I can change myself. I can control how I treat people, how I work for peace in small ways, uh, the way in which I treat the cashier at the shopping center, the way in which I treat the petrol attendant, the way that I treat the people who work for me in my home and in my garden. Just small ways in which I can try to work for peace. It makes a difference. I can work for peace 
and in that way reflect something of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to other people. But secondly, we need to pursue peace within the church. That's what Paul means when he says, since as members of one body you are called to peace. The New Testament church was incredibly divided. If you just look at uh, the little congregation in Philippi for a moment, there you had former prostitutes rubbing shoulders with government officials. You had slaves sitting next to free men. You had Greeks and Jews together in the same room. I don't know if we can imagine what kinds of deep divisions existed in those days, particularly between Jew and Gentile. The temple in Jerusalem had an outer court that was intended for the Gentiles. And above the door that led from the outer court of the Gentiles to the inner court of the Jews, there was a sign that read, any Gentile who enters into the Jewish court will be responsible for his own death. There was huge hostility. But in his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul mentions this hostility and he also mentions how it has been taken away by the death of Christ. Listen to what he says. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. In other words, Jesus' death doesn't just reconcile us to God, it reconciles us to one another. And God does this at great cost to himself. When Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 14, Father, make them one. That oneness was gained through huge personal cost to each member of the Trinity. One writer puts it like this. The Son will go to the cross. The Father, who had known nothing from all eternity but perfect intimacy with his Son, will now be cut off from his Son and see his beloved suffer the anguish and alienation of sin. The Spirit will come to earth and allow himself to be quenched and grieved by human beings. At, enorm at enormous cost to every member of the Trinity, you and I have been welcomed to the eternal circle to be held in the heart of Father, Son, and Spirit. And therefore, to fail to prize community, to tolerate disunity with the people that God loves, particularly disunity in the body of Christ, or to do things that could lead to disunity is utterly unthinkable. To allow or contribute to disunity in this fellowship is to be fundamentally at odds with the purposes of God in human history. We're to make every effort to be at peace with one another. Not that we'll always agree, we can be brothers without having to be twin brothers. We're different people with different interests, different emphases, different sins. But we're to make sure that we're at peace. I read a wonderful story recently about two men in church, Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, who had had an argument over some trivial matter and now couldn't speak to each other. Their antagonism had gone on for months and everyone just knew that they couldn't speak with each other. Uh, at church, they would sit on opposite sides of the church. They'd barely make eye contact. 
And one of the church deacons, Deacon Brown, was greatly disturbed by these two men not getting along with each other. And he prayed that he might be able to be used by God as a peacemaker. And so one evening he went and he visited Mr. Smith and he had coffee with him. And during the visit he asked, what do you think of Mr. Jones? Mr. Smith replied, Jones, he's the meanest, crankiest man in the whole neighborhood. Deacon Brown said, but you've got to admit he's very kind to his family. And Smith said, yes, that's true. He's very kind to his family. No one can deny that. Well, the next evening, Deacon Brown went to Mr. Jones' home for coffee. And during the evening, he said to Mr. Jones, do you know what Mr. Smith said about you last night? Mr. Jones said, no, I don't know what he said, but I wouldn't believe anything that low-down, dirty skunk would say anyway. Deacon Jones said, well, this may surprise you, but Mr. Smith said that you are very kind to your family. Did Smith really say that? Yes, he did. Well, if you hadn't told me, I would never have believed you. And then Deacon Brown said, so tell me, what do you think about Mr. Smith? And Mr. Jones replied, well, honestly, I believe he's a low-down, rotten, dirty scoundrel. And Deacon Jones said, but you've got to admit he's very honest in his business dealings. And Jones admitted, yes, that is true. Everyone knows that he's an extremely honest businessman. Well, the next evening, Deacon Brown went round to Mr. Smith's house again. And during the course of the evening, he said, do you know what Mr. Jones said about you? He said that you are one of the most honest businessmen in the whole city. Did he really say that? Yes, he did. Well, I never, said Mr. Smith. Next Sunday morning, as the two men walked into church, Mr. Smith nodded to Mr. Jones, and Mr. Jones nodded to Mr. Smith, and a few weeks later, the two of them could be found having tea together and talking together in the church hall after the service. We're to make every effort to be at peace with one another. And if we're to ask the question, why? Why should I do any of this? It seems like such hard work. The answer is there for us in verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. As we come to the communion table in a few minutes, when I consider how much I've been forgiven by God, it becomes that much easier to forgive the things, both little and big, that others do against me. And so just those two points with a load of subpoints as well. This morning, if we know and love Jesus, we have peace with God, a right standing with him and his peace in our hearts. We're then called to be his ambassadors of peace, to preach peace and practice peace with everyone around us, and especially among the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we recognize the huge cost that each of you bore to bring us into your eternal circle to be held in the heart of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We say thank you that we can have peace with you. We pray that we might be those who proclaim and practice peace too. In Jesus' name, amen.